0: All right. Well, we are in our ecclesiology series, studying the doctrine of the church. And so today we're going to talk about uh, one of the church sacraments or ordinances. Either term is appropriate. We're going to be talking about baptism. Now, we're going to, today when we talk about baptism, we're going to be talking about the meaning of baptism, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of baptism. And then next week we're going to be talking about mode and candidates, meaning how should baptism be done? Should it be done through dunking, sprinkling, pouring, effusion, whatever it might be? Uh, And then we're also going to talk about the candidates, who should be baptized, okay? Who should be baptized? But first we're going to talk about baptism itself, its meaning, and its history, and, uh, and it should be a fun deal. So... With that in mind, let's start with a definition of baptism taken from your very own Parkway's statement of faith, okay? Baptism is the immersion in water of a confessing believer into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. That's a pretty good definition there of baptism and what it means. Now, you need to understand in baptism... There's two things going on when it comes to this relationship. There is you swearing your allegiance to Jesus. That's what you're doing, okay? You know how if somebody is not a citizen and then they become a citizen of a country, they have to swear their new allegiance to that country? That's kind of what you're doing in baptism. You're swearing allegiance to King Jesus. You're swearing allegiance to the kingdom of God. That is kind of your citizenship ritual where they put up a Jesus flag and you raise your right hand and you pledge allegiance to Christ. But, and here's what you need to know, more than that, It's Christ's promise to you, okay? It's Christ's promise to you. The Reformers actually fight each other a lot on whether or not you're making a promise to God or he's making a promise to you in baptism. It's both, but the primary one is his, The primary one is his, okay? That uh, what God is doing in baptism is he is swearing something to you. He's sealing something. He's giving you encouragement and evidence for something that is already yours by faith, and that's what's going on with baptism. Baptism is like preaching the gospel through acting it out, instead of just preaching it through words. So typically you get to hear the gospel on Sunday mornings through words. We get up and we tell you who Christ is and what he's done and how you can be forgiven and all of that. When you witness a baptism, you're witnessing a mock funeral. You're taking somebody who was dead in their sins, somebody who hated God, they're dying, right? They're dying and then they're being raised back up to walk in newness of life. And so that is the uh, the idea of baptism. You're watching a mock funeral. How do you know when you die, you won't just take a big dirt nap? How do you know that when you die, you will not be judged uh, by God for your sins and be condemned? Well, because you've already died, and you've already been judged for your sins and been shown to be righteous in Christ. That is the idea of uh, baptism. So let's get into a brief history of biblical ritual washings. That sounds like a dissertation topic or something. And so uh, let's go through a few of these things here. Where do we get the idea of baptism? First of all, though not technically baptism, the Israelites partook in different ritual washings associated with cleanness. Now, this isn't just the case within a Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, There are many religions that do some type of ritual washings because water symbolizes cleanness, but I want you to see a few of these things from the Old Testament. So there's already this idea in the Old Testament that you do these ritual washings as a symbol of your uh, purity before God. Leviticus 11 24 through 25 and by these you shall become unclean it gives this list of these things that make you unclean whoever touches their carcass these dead animals shall be unclean until the evening and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening so you have all these rituals in the old testament uh, and all these things that make you unclean and one of the way that you cleanse yourself from that uncleanness if you will uh, is through these ritual washings okay Numbers thirty-one twenty-four. you must wash your clothes on the seventh day and you shall be clean and afterwards you may come into the camp. In this context, it's talking about things that make you ritualistically unclean. You have to wait a certain amount of time. You have to wash again. There's this ritual washing and then you uh, can go back into, uh, into the camp. 2 Kings five fourteen. Now, this one's especially interesting because this is the only Old Testament baptism actually style thing that's going on with a guy named Naaman the Syrian, So he, that's Naaman, this is the guy with the the skin disease, what's often called leprosy, although we technically don't know what type of skin disease it is. Leprosy is kind of a catch all term for skin disease in the Old Testament. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped himself. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, the word there is baptizo. Okay, not only in the Old Testament is immersion the mode that's used. Uh, that we see in the New Testament as they go down into the water and such. But even in the Old Testament, we have uh, Naaman going and baptizing himself, if you wanna say it that way, dipping himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean, okay? So in the Old Testament, you have this idea that water is used in these ritualistic ways to talk about cleanness, okay? Now eventually, Uh, those things, those ritual washings start to be called mikvahs. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. That's kind of a popular Jewish phrase. They're called mikvahs. Now, a mikvah is not a baptism. Let me be clear. A lot of people confuse those two. There's only a tenuous link between those things. A mikvah is simply a ritual washing for a Jew. Jews partake in mikvahs today. Before they go worship, before sometimes on holy days and these kind of things, they will even have this little bath or this little uh, place in their home where they can go and do this kind of ritual cleansing, and that is what is known as a mikvah. Now, here's something interesting: you don't have baptism proper in the Old Testament. Okay, the mark of the uh, covenantal sign in the Old Testament is circumcision, which you circumcise your sons on the eighth day after they're born. Now. Before the time of the New Testament, though, in between the time of the Old Testament and the time of the New Testament, Gentiles who converted to Judaism were required to be baptized, okay? So the first type of real baptism that you get within a Judeo-Christian worldview is Gentiles in the time before the New Testament being baptized. So here's what it would look like. Let's say I'm from Syria or let's say I'm from Greece or something like that and I want to become Jewish, this is before the time of Christ, I want to become Jewish, let's say it's 200 B.C., I want to become a Jew, I want to worship the God of Israel, I think that's the one true God, what I first have to do is circumcision, ouch, okay? Then after that, after I've healed, I then partake in a baptism, okay? Baptisms were done always in running water, okay? It had to be living water. Baptisms were done, wait for it, naked, Okay? So if a woman was being baptized, the rabbis would actually turn their back as not to look upon her inappropriately, and she would dip, and you would dip yourself. You would walk down into the mikvahs, and you would dip yourself, and you would stand back up. This is what's going on with baptism before the time of the New Testament. That's not how it's done in the New Testament, but this is kind of a partial precursor to that, okay? We have... uh We have uh, writings from rabbis talking about these uh, Gentile proselyte baptisms that would happen, and as you came out of the water, the rabbis would say, your skin is as the skin of infants, right? There's this idea that you've died to your old Gentileness and all your grossness and all your uncircumcision, but now you're circumcised and you've converted to Judaism. You're a true Jew now, not just a God-fearer, not just someone who stays kind of on the fringes but thinks that the God of Israel is right, and so that's what you've got going on before the time of the New Testament, and there's only a tenuous link between Jewish proselyte baptism and Christian baptism. They're not directly related. Now, let me tell you why John the Baptist is so radical. Everybody know who John the Baptist is? Okay, that's not a denominational title. It's not like it wasn't John the Presbyterian or John the Methodist. It was John the Baptist. Well, he's called the Baptist because he baptizes. That's the idea. And I want you to see this. Matthew 3, 6 through 9. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, let me tell you why this is so important and why John the Baptist is radical. Okay? In the time of Jesus, the only people who were baptized were Gentiles converting to Judaism. Let me say that again. In the time of Jesus, before you have New Testament Christian Trinitarian baptism, the only people that are baptized are Gentiles converting to Judaism, okay? That's something that Gentiles need. Jews didn't do baptism. Jews were already in the covenant, okay? This is why John the Baptist is so radical. He's saying, even if you're a Jew, you must convert and follow God. Even if you are a Jew, you need repentance, and you need faith, and you need cleansing, and you need forgiveness. That's why John the Baptist is so radical. The Jews would have already agreed that if a Gentile wanted to come to Judaism, they needed to be baptized. But what John is saying is, wait a second, you can't just say we're children of Abraham. We're already in covenant with God. God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. If you wanna be a child of Abraham, you have to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's why John the Baptist is radical is because he's saying you don't get to just assume that you and God are cool because you're a Jew. You and God are only cool when there is repentance, okay, when there is repentance. Now, John's baptism and Christian baptism are united, but there is a newness that Christ brings, Acts 19, 2 through 5. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. That's a big problem. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, okay? So there is this link between John's baptism, because John is preaching the kingdom of God, And preaching repentance. And we preach the same thing today the kingdom of God and repentance. But Jesus brings a newness, a new wine, if you will, that doesn't fully fit within old wineskins. And so that's what's going on there in the book of Acts. Now, why does Jesus get baptized? You ever wondered that? John the Baptist wonders that, right? Jesus comes up and he's like, I should be baptized by you. And John's like, I don't know if you know who you are and you know who I am, but you've got this backwards. You should be baptizing me. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Jesus is sinless. He's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He's not born with the taint of original sin. He is virgin born. He is uh, free from Adam's stain of sin and these kind of things. Why then does Jesus need to be baptized? Well, he actually answers that question. He says to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Let me say it this way. Does Jesus need to offer Old Testament sacrifices for his sin? No. But does he anyway? Yes. Why? Because he has to live righteously on our behalf. Jesus isn't just dying for our sins to forgive us. He has to positively live righteous on our behalf so that we might be saved. We can't just be neutral and forgiven. We have to be positively righteous. So though Jesus doesn't have to offer any sacrifices for his sins, he's still going to follow the Mosaic law because he is earning our salvation and doing what we should do. That's why he gets baptized. He doesn't need to repent. He's sinless. What he is doing is he is doing it on our behalf. He is showing us that if you want to belong to my slash John's kingdom of God movement, you have to bear fruit in in seeking repentance. Jesus is identifying with sinful humanity. He is doing the right action, even though he doesn't have any sin, and he is aligning himself with this kingdom of God message that uh, John is, uh, is preaching. That's what's going on, and that's why Jesus gets baptized. Now, let's talk about the multifaceted imagery of Christian baptism, okay? Baptism is kind of like a diamond. I don't know if you've ever seen a diamond, but uh, if you ever uh, proposed to a lady, you had to learn everything about diamonds. I took a class on diamonds to learn color and cut and clarity, and all these Cs, the C that they leave off is cost, uh, but uh, you have all these Cs to learn about these diamonds, and if you take a diamond and hold it in the light and turn it, you see a bunch of different things. You'll see blues and reds and different kinds of sparkle, and it will reflect the light in different ways. Baptism's kind of like that. You can't just say, what, does the one, what is the one thing baptism stands for? Baptism is symbolic of a bunch of things, and the Bible uses a bunch of imagery to talk about baptism, kind of like you're turning that diamond. So let me give you a few uh, images associated with baptism, okay? First, the washing away of sin. The washing away of sin. Acts twenty two sixteen. 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, meaning the name of Christ. Number two, by the way, <clears throat> know that if you're someone who's a Christian, all these symbols you can apply to your life. I don't want you to just say, ah, baptism is a symbol of washing. I want you to realize you're clean, you're washed. When God looks at you, he doesn't see you as a little bit dirty. I think that's how most of us see ourselves. Saved, but a little bit dirty. We're Christians, but next to our title is Christian, there's a little asterisk, and if you look at the bottom of God's salvation contract, it still mentions all the terrible things we've done. No, our sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west, and we are washed and we are clean. Number two, a removal of the power of sin in your life, Colossians 2.11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, Okay? As a Christian, you still sin. You're you're not free from the presence of sin, but you are free from the power of sin. Sin doesn't get to own you anymore. You have a new master. Your master was sin, but that master was cut off, kind of like circumcision uh, when it comes to baptism, okay? Number three, death to sin, death to sin. Romans 6, six through seven. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved, notice that phrase, to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the reason our baptistry is in the shape of a coffin, okay? We're not trying to be weird or morbid. We didn't buy it from Hot Topic or something like that. We want it to symbolize death to your old life, death to your preferences, death to you being the master of your life, and rather new life in Christ. It's supposed to look like a coffin because a death is going on. One of the things that uh, Jerry Holbrook would say, uh, the guy who uh, was the pastor here for 25 years, is when someone was like walking with him through the church building, say there was a visitor here, someone would walk by the baptism and it kind of looks like a coffin, especially when the lid's on it and it's sealed. We've taken that off now so you don't think Dracula's in there or something, but we've taken it off, but the, the lid would be on it and someone would say, uh, did somebody die here? Who, who's, who's buried here? Who's died? And Jerry would say, hopefully all of our members right? That's the idea is that we die. Not that he wants to kill you. That's not the idea. Uh, The idea is that we've all died to sin and that we have new life in Christ, which is the fourth one, new life in Christ. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice, baptism isn't just a death. It's also symbolic of a resurrection, there's a reason why when we, hold some, you know, we put somebody under water, we don't just hold them there and send them to glory, mission accomplished. They now have a life to live, and so we raise them back up that they might walk in newness of life, okay? Number five, it symbolizes hope in the future resurrection, Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You will be raised because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And how do you confirm that to your conscience, which might want to condemn you? You remind yourself that, oh, I've already died. I've already been united with Christ's death, so therefore I will be united with his resurrection. God is not a liar. When he promises you something, including what he promises you in baptism, he does not fail to fulfill it. Okay? It symbolizes our unity in the church. Notice this, Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope, uh, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Notice that we as Christians go back to the time of the apostles. There's not two churches. There's not two faiths. There's not two kinds of baptisms or something like that. There is biblical, historic, orthodox views of Jesus and a baptism into the name of the Trinitarian God, and that is the only baptism. That is the only church. That is the only faith. It's a link that unites us, Okay. Here's what's interesting. If you have Christians from different races, you have Christians that are different genders, you have Christians that live in different parts of the world, right? So one lives in uh, China and one lives in South Africa and one lives in France or whatever it might be. Here's something that unites us. We've all been baptized into Christ. We have a common experience that lost people do not have with us, okay? Number seven, now this is one that people have a tendency not to think much about, but I think it's actually really important. Passing through the wrathful waters of judgment. Okay, let me say it this way. You ever heard of like a Jewish navy? You haven't, okay? The Jews don't like water in the Old Testament. They're kind of like cats or something like that. They they don't like water. Water is seen as this scary thing, right? The spirit in creation has to to still the waters of chaos that are going about the earth, right? The flood, the waters with Noah, the, the waters are scary. They come and destroy everything. It's God who has to take a hook and put it in Leviathan's nose, this Canaanite sea god. In the book of Revelation, the beast comes out of the water. That's why in Revelation it says that eventually there will be no sea. It's not that Jesus hates the beach. It's that the water, oftentimes in the Bible, is symbolic of what's scary. It's symbolic of what's chaotic, right? Imagine being a little fisherman back in the ancient world before you had Google, and all of a sudden you see a giant squid. You're like, what is happening in the water, right? Or you see a whale or a shark, and you're gonna freak out because those are sea monsters to you. And so the idea, though, is that God is the one who brings you through the wrathful waters of judgment. 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through those wrathful waters, God's judging waters on the nations, baptism which corresponds to this, okay? Number eight. The union of Jew and Gentile, Acts ten forty seven. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, these are Gentiles, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? I want you to notice a few things here. In Acts 10, uh, they're preaching the gospel to a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is not a Jew, okay? He and his family are Gentiles, and as the gospel is being preached to them, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're saved and regenerated. Notice, one, that God is saving Gentiles, which is really amazing. Notice also that they are saved and have the Holy Spirit before they are baptized. Now that they have the Holy Spirit, Peter's going to say, they should get baptized as well because baptism is a linking of Jew and Gentile, okay? Number nine, union with Christ. Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ Christ. It's like your clothes. You have these, uh, these old, gross clothes of the old man, these old, sin, nasty clothes that just have sins written all over them, and those are taken off, and you're given Jesus clothes, if you want to say it that way, in, uh, in baptism. And then 10, and there's a lot more, but 10, we'll use this. Repentance, Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that repentance is linked to baptism. Repentance is linked to baptism, and there's many more. We we could talk a lot uh, about this, but uh, for time's sake, we're going to have to continue on with the lesson. Now, let me say this. Let's talk for a second about whether or not baptism saves you. Does baptism save you? Does baptism produce regeneration? What does baptism do? Now, I have wrestled a lot with this issue. I grew up in a denomination that taught that baptism is what regenerated you, and then when I actually became a Christian at 18, I was like, well, well, then what just happened to me? And uh, I got saved, and so then I got baptized again, and I've been wrestling with all these kind of issues. What do you do with this? Now, let me tell you why there's an issue here. The word saved is constantly used in the New Testament with the word baptism. What must we do to, re- to, to be saved? You must repent and be baptized, they'll say in Acts 2. Or uh, be baptized and wash away your sins. Or that quote that I just read from 1 Peter three twenty one. eventually says, this corresponds to baptism which now saves you. So what do you do with that? On the one hand, you have all these passages that say that you're saved by faith alone. That you're like Cornelius, you hear the gospel and you're saved. Paul will say that when you heard the gospel and believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have some people that get the, the Spirit and then they get baptized You have other people that get baptized, like Simon the Magician, and don't have the Spirit. So what do you do? You just keep dunking them, hoping that sometime it takes or something like that? What's going on? Why does the Bible, if we're saved, by faith alone in Christ alone, which, by the way, is my view, okay? Someone's on their deathbed, they repent, they trust in Christ, they've never been baptized, they are still saved, they are going to heaven, they are forgiven by God. If that's the case, and that is true, why is the word saved? often used so often in the new testament with the idea of baptism that's the thing that i had wrestled through for years and years and years until finally somebody helped me understand what is known as a metonymy okay you're like oh no that's not a word i understand what is a metonymy a metonymy is where a word stands in for a bigger idea i'll give you a few examples if i say the white house said did the actual white house say anything no why not it's a house. That's a great example. It's a building. It doesn't talk. The White House can't say anything. When I say White House, I use that as a stand-in for the president or for his administration, for something that actually is not the White House at all, but rather people. The people of the White House said this. Or if I say this one, I'm talking about the Civil War, and I say Georgia seceded. Did the landmass known as Georgia do anything? No, I'm using Georgia as a, what's called a metonymy to talk about the people in Georgia or the governing structures in Georgia. Or one of my favorite metonymies is this: the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. If you take that literally, that's not true. A sword is way better. You have a fountain pen and I have a sword, and I will win ten times out of ten, unless you're like Jason Bourne. He takes that pen and <laughs> he takes that pen and he can do some stuff with it, right? So here's what you need to understand: baptism is used as a metonymy in the New Testament. It's not that you're saved by a water ritual, okay? It's not that you're saved by a water ritual. Baptism is used as a stand-in for what really saves you. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ, forgiveness, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all those kind of things is what baptism stands in for. If I'm talking to somebody and they're thinking about cheating on their spouse and I say, you do not need to cheat on your spouse because you walked down the aisle. Walking down the aisle isn't what made them married. I'm using that as a metonymy. I'm using that as a stand-in to talk about their wedding vows and the pronouncement of the minister and all these other things, okay? That's why the New Testament will sometimes use the term baptism with the word saved. It's not that the baptism literally saves you. The baptism is a stand-in for what really saves you, which is conversion and repentance and faith in Christ, okay? It's really important that you understand that. You can't confuse correlation with causation. Let me say that again. You can't confuse correlation with causation. Just because two things happen around the same time, that doesn't mean that one necessarily causes the other. Your regeneration is not caused by baptism. Your forgiveness of sins is not caused by baptism. Those are by the Spirit only, okay? That by repenting and believing, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He and he alone can save you. You're saved by faith alone. You are not in any way saved by baptism. Justification is a gift received by faith. It's something that God does, okay? So keep that in mind, that's why. Now let me give you a few examples of where this happens even outside of baptismal context. Look at this first one. We don't have time to unpack everything this means today. This would be a fun fun passage to do in a tough text series sometime, but here it is. 1 Timothy 2.15. So if you say, Zach, I disagree with you. When the Bible says baptism saves, it always has to mean that it literally saves. Well, look at this verse. 1 Timothy 2.15. Yet she, that means a woman, will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, does that mean that she is literally justified because of childbearing? That a barren woman or a single woman can't be saved because in addition to faith in Christ, you must also physically have a child. Is that what this text is meaning? No. Childbearing is a stand-in, it's a metonymy for walking righteously as a godly woman, which in most cases, if you're married, includes being a godly mother. That's the idea. Or how about this? When somebody is sick, James 5.15. And the prayer of faith, that's not that person's personal faith. In context, this is a sick person who goes to the elders of the church so that they can pray for him, and it's talking about the faith of the elders. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Does that mean that, uh, you know, like Steve and Wade or Mike Boss or any of these, one of our elders can pray for somebody who's lost and their faith saves them? No. Here the word saved is used metaphorically for something like they'll get well, they'll be saved from sickness, Okay. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. You are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, because Jesus is the one that did all the righteousness and the saving. God is not saying to you, I will only forgive you once you've had the chance to do a water ritual. That's not the idea, okay? Now, I want to say this. Baptism is not salvific, but it is more than a symbol, Okay, so you might say, okay, Zach, it's not, it's not necessary for salvation. I'm saved by faith in Christ. So I just won't get baptized. I just don't have time for that. I hate getting wet anyway. I mean, I have a fear of drowning or whatever. I'm not gonna get in front of a bunch of people and do these things. It's not salvific, but it is more than just a symbol, right? Symbols do something. When, when God gives us baptism and communion, they're both more than symbols. If they were just symbols, they were just things we're supposed to think about, we wouldn't need them at all. I could just think that I'm forgiven. And I could just know that that I belong to Christ's table and I have fellowship with his church but no God gives us these sacraments to help us in our weakness let me give you an example this comes from John Calvin and I think it's really really helpful what Calvin says is this he says we should be able just to take God at his word right God's honest God never lies we should be able just to take God at his word but because we're weak because we are fallible God has given us these sensory things that we can see and taste and touch and feel to encourage our faith because of our weaknesses. Not because God needs them. God doesn't, you don't receive anything from the sacraments that is not also already included in the word, okay? But rather, God uses them to strengthen our faith. Let me give you an example. So let's say I have to go on a trip and I have to fly out somewhere, okay? And so I go to my son Judah, he's three, and he doesn't understand a lot of things, and I say, hey, buddy, daddy has to be gone for a few days, but then I'm gonna come back. And he just breaks down into tears. No, daddy, no, don't leave. He'll say that sometimes when I'm leaving for work. He'll say, but I want you, but I want you. It's adorable, okay? So let's say I'm leaving and he starts crying and he says, how do I know you'll come back? I say, what do you mean, how do you know I'll come back? I'm not lying to you, I'm a good father and I'm telling you, I'm gonna come back. And he's like, but what if you don't come back? Why do you keep saying that? Take me at my word because I'm a good father and I'm gonna come back. So instead, what I might do is I might take my boarding pass or might take my plane ticket or whatever and print out a copy and give it to him. And i say, whenever you think that I might not come back, I want you to look at that, something you can see with your eyes and feel with your hands to know that I'm not a liar and I've promised you I'm going to come back. Calvin says that's how the sacraments are used. God should be able just to tell us you're forgiven, you're washed, you have fellowship, but because we're weak and because God is gracious, he gives us these reminders That we can't, thoughts can just be toyed around in your head. Bread and wine must be eaten. Baptism must be felt. It's these things that are meant to encourage your faith and grow you in your trust of God because of your weaknesses, not because God needs them, okay? Number three, is baptism required for salvation? No. Is baptism required for you to be obedient to Christ? Absolutely. There is no such thing as an unbaptized Christian in the New Testament, Everybody in the New Testament who gets saved gets baptized very quickly afterwards. They don't wait 10 years or something like this. And so you need to know that it is not necessary for salvation, but that doesn't therefore mean it's optional. You must be baptized if you have not been baptized. You must be obedient to Christ's command, okay? Now, <clears throat> let's spend a little bit of time, since we're talking about the meaning and history of baptism, let's talk about some interesting things about baptism and church history, okay? Maybe you think that the church started with you or your denomination or with your grandparents or something like that. That's not true. The church has been going on for at least 2,000 years and I would say much older because I believe that the Old Testament people of God are also the church. The term congregation or assembly translated in the Old Testament Septuagint is ekklesia. It's the term for church in the New Testament. And so so I think that our uh, faith actually goes back much further. But I wanna give you a few interesting things about baptism in church history. The earliest church did baptism by immersion, okay? Jeff will talk next week more about the mode and candidates of baptism. How should it be done? And also to whom should it be done? But you need to understand that the earliest church did baptism by immersion. Now, different churches did different things. Some churches baptized face up, like we do today. Some churches baptized face down. Why? Because when you die, you fall forward, okay? Unless you get a little push or something. You start going this and then you fall backwards. So they, some would do it face down. Some would dunk one time, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Some three times, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay? In fact, the Greek Orthodox Church, because they know Greek so well, and they know the word baptizo means to dunk, has always done baptisms by immersion, even of infants, okay? So you can watch videos on YouTube of Greek Orthodox baptisms because they have a baby, and they need to dunk that baby, and because in Greek orthodoxy they, uh, they sometimes put a primacy on the threeness of God and, uh, in addition to the oneness of God, they will dunk that baby three times, but sometimes they can't get the whole baby underwater, so it ends up becoming six. So they will take a baby, dip half of it, name of the Father, that's two, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit. And that baby comes out like, what is happening, right? But notice that the earliest church... Did it, uh, did it by immersion? By the way, I don't think it matters which one of those you do. I like the way that we do it with one immersion into the name of the Trinitarian God. I think that that uh, best shows the symbolism, but it's not as though if a church does it face down, they're not, it's not real baptism or something like that. In the same way that Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, baptism is made for man and not man for baptism. It's meant to be this encouraging thing. It's not meant to be this weird legalistic thing where, I don't know if you've ever thought this, where somebody goes under the water but their elbow comes out and you're like, oh man, they're toast. <laughs> it's like Achilles, right? He's dipped in the river sticks, but he's held by his heel. If the devil shoots one of his arrows, his fiery darts right there in that elbow, they're toast, all right? That's not the idea. It's not meant to be legalistic, okay? Number two, a Christian document called the Didache, okay? The Didache, that means the teaching. Didaskalos is a teacher in Greek. The Didache, written around the first century, outlines other modes of baptism as follows. So listen to what the early church did regarding baptism. <clears throat> concerning baptism, baptize thus, having first rehearsed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. So what they're saying is your first preference is immersion, okay? If you can do immersion, that's the best, okay? But if thou hast no running water, baptize in other water. They're saying if you don't have a river, it's okay to baptize in a bathtub or in a, you know, ye olde kind of jacuzzi hot tub or whatever it might be. And if thou are not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm, okay? They baptize typically in cold water. I think there's this idea of cleansing and of shocking. It feels like you've been reborn because of the coldness of the water. <clears throat> but if thou hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And before the baptizer, uh, baptism, let the baptizer and him who is to be baptized fast and any others who are able. Thou shalt bid him who is to be baptized to fast one or two days before. So they would have them fast and they would do baptisms in uh, running water. Now at this point, they did not do them naked. That was a Jewish proselyte thing. That's not a uh, a New Testament thing. And notice also in the New Testament, you don't dip yourself. In Jewish proselyte baptism, you dipped yourself. In the New Testament, there's always somebody else dipping you. Why? Because you don't put yourself into the faith. God puts you into the faith and into the faith of his church, okay? Uh, But notice that they, they did say that if there's not enough water, you can pour it on their head. That's not ideal, uh, but it's allowed, okay? We had a guy that was visiting this church actually recently, and he works with uh, inmates on death row. And uh, he gets to share the gospel with them if some of them get saved. But there's no bathtubs in prison. I don't know if you've ever been to prison, but it's not as much fun as you'd think. And there's not like hot tubs and, and swimming pools and these kind of things. And so there's no way for them to do baptism. And they will not let them out because these guys are on death row. So they're not gonna let them go to a church even with a security guard or anything like that. And so uh, they would do baptisms by, with a water bottle, pouring it on their head because that's all that they had. Okay? You sometimes see this with soldiers out in the desert. You know, they're uh, gonna go off to battle and people get saved and they wanna be baptized and there's not enough water. So again, it's not ideal It's not a pattern we see in the New Testament, but I don't think in those extreme cases that it would be wrong. I think in normal cases, though, we should be shooting for the biblical norm, which is baptism by immersion, okay? Number three, very early on in the church, there were two wrong ideas that affected the church regarding baptism, okay? So in the the New Testament, you only have the baptism of believers explicitly, and you only have it done by immersion explicitly. That's all you have in the New Testament. Very early on in the church, two ideas kind of crept into the church that caused them to start baptizing infants. Okay? Here's what they were One, or yeah, one was the idea that baptism itself regenerated you. The idea that was, uh, wasn't that faith saved you and then a faithful person should also walk in obedience and be baptized? It was that baptism itself saved you. The other idea that kind of crept into the church was that infants who died without being baptized would not be saved. This confusion would lead to the idea of infant baptismal regeneration, which would dominate the church until the Reformation. So imagine that you live in the 2nd century or the 3rd century A.D., and the mortality rate for infants is high. I mean, it might be something like one out of four babies born might die and die pretty young, and you think that baptism is what saves. What are you going to do? we are going to try to baptize that baby. You don't want your kid going to hell. Now, instead of realizing that according to the New Testament, you only baptize believers, and that God can have grace on anybody God wants to have grace on, whether there's baptism or not. That should have been the correct way that the church addressed it. Instead, what they did is they started adapting it to this practice of infant baptism, uh, the Roman Catholic view of infant baptism, that it washes away the sin of Adam and regenerates you uh, until later on when you can personally put your faith in, uh, in Christ. So another thing about the early church. Now look at this. This is fascinating. The early church put an emphasis on six things regarding baptism. The forgiveness of sins... The deliverance from death, regeneration, the gift of the Spirit, identification with Christ. Now, look at this last one. We never think about this last one today. The renunciation of Satan. That's what you're doing when you're being baptized. You don't have to say all the words and do all those kind of things. You don't have to do weird rituals or anything like this. You don't have to become blade and go demon hunting. That's not the idea. Buy a crossbow and a, a crucifix and some salt or something. That's not the idea. But when you are baptized, you are also renouncing Satan. You realize nobody is neutral. It's not like you're just neutral and lost and then you come to know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you actively belong to the devil. Does that mean that you are demonized? No, I don't mean that, but you are under the power and under the authority and under the reign of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this age. And so uh, when you're baptized, what you're doing is, whether you know it or not, by putting your allegiance in Christ, you're forsaking the allegiance that you had to the devil. Greg Allison says, baptismal candidates would face west and say, I renounce you, Satan, and all your works and all your pomp, and all your worship. They would then turn east and say, I believe in the Father, and in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and in one baptism of repentance. Why did they face west to renounce Satan? Because that's where California is. No, uh, the idea is because that's where the sun sets, right? That's where it gets dark. The east is Jerusalem. The east is where Christ is coming back. The Messiah comes from the east, and so there was that idea there. Tertullian, early church father, 160 to 220. When entering the water, we bear public testimony that we have renounced the devil, his pomp, and his angels. Notice that they're entering in the water because they're doing by immersion in the earliest church. Hermann Bavinck, a uh, fantastic, maybe the best, uh, reformed uh, systematic theologian, or at least has the best uh, systematic theology uh, four-volume text, says this. Baptism itself was fenced in by a wide range of symbolic actions, such as the presentation of the child or person receiving baptism by sponsors, making profession of faith, blowing on the face of the candidate for baptism and making the sign of the cross, putting consecrated salt into the mouth of the candidate for baptism, exorcism, the thrice-repeated immersion or sprinkling, the anointing with chrism. What is chrism? It's like a, uh, like a balsamic uh, oil that's used for anointing. The anointing with chrism, The giving of a new name, the putting on of a white garment, the handing over of a lighted candle, the admission to the church, the fraternal kiss, and sometimes the celebration of the Lord's Supper immediately afterwards. So you have in church history a bunch of other rituals that are often associated with baptism. Now, number five, the early church would sometimes anoint someone with oil and lay hands on them after being baptized. That's something the early church did. I don't think that that's a requirement. I don't think that's actually why the apostles are laying hands on people for them to receive the Spirit in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a transitional book. You're going from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And so what happens is, as these people say that they have faith, you don't want just a second church starting. You don't want some sort of heretical church starting. So what the apostles are doing is they're giving this apostolic... Uh, this apostolic stamp of approval on what's happening. That's what's going on in the book of Acts. That's why the apostles are laying their hands on people, not because you have to do that for someone to receive the Spirit, but because in the early church, the apostles are trying to say, we affirm this message, okay? Kind of like a political candidate. Hi, I'm the apostle Peter and I affirm this gospel, that kind of thing, okay? Number six, new converts often had to learn theology for up to three years before they were allowed to be baptized, okay? So what the early church wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that you really knew Christ before being baptized. And they wanted you to know what you're getting into. And so sometimes they would make you study for years before they would actually let you be baptized. Can you imagine that? Someone's like, I just came to faith, I'd like to be baptized. And we're like, you need to come to theological equipping for three years. And then once you understand all these things, then you can be baptized, okay? Uh, Someone who's not yet been baptized but is a Christian is called a catechumen, a catechumen, okay? In the early church, what would happen is Uh, the whole church service for the preaching and these kind of things everybody would be allowed to partake and then they would dismiss the catechumen and dismiss people who were lost okay they would let those people go before they took communion because communion is just for believers and it's just for believers that have been obedient in baptism so they would dismiss those people and the Latin word for dismiss uh, is the word masse it's where we get the word mass like in Roman Catholicism they partake of the mass that's where that comes from okay number seven Some people in the early church thought that baptism only forgave you of your previous sins. The Emperor Constantine, everybody know who Constantine is? You've at least heard of that on some sort of weird History Channel, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code kind of special or something like that. Constantine is the first Roman emperor that legalizes Christianity, that makes it a religio licita, makes it a legal religion. And uh, supposedly he converts to Christianity. Now it's dubious on whether or not he actually did because he like killed a bunch of people after his conversion and stuff. He was real kind of shady. But he waited to be baptized till he was on his deathbed to cover as many sins as possible, okay? Let me say something that I hope will free you up very powerfully. When you repent and you trust in Christ and you become a Christian, you are forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future, okay? I used to kind of think that you were forgiven for all your sins up until that point, but then if you committed all these other sins, well, I don't know what you do. You're just toast because you have all these other sins that you've committed post-baptism. When you trust in Christ, you're forgiven for all sins, past, present, and future. All of your sins were future when Christ died on the cross. Let me say that again. When Christ died on the cross for you, all of your sins were future, you can't distinguish that he only died for these ones but not these ones. This is one of the reasons why you can't lose your salvation. If, all, if, if at any point in your life you've ever been saved and all of your sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven you, how could you lose your salvation? How would God damn you? There's no sins to put back on your account. All your sins have already been forgiven. So if God wants to damn you, there's no sins that he can use to call against you. They've all been forgiven. And so it's not just that you're forgiven for sins pre-baptism, you're forgiven for sins uh, pre- and post-conversion, pre- and post-conversion. Number eight, some church leaders, such as Tertullian and Origen, thought infants should not be baptized. It's important to realize the early church did not have this kind of universal consent that uh, infants should be baptized. That's not true. They debated each other over it. Uh, But the infant baptism view eventually won out. The first record we have, I believe, if my reading is correct, of a church leader doing infant baptism is the guy Irenaeus, who is a Uh, Fantastic early church leader, but I think he's wrong on that issue. Uh, He lived 140 to 202. The Council of Carthage in 418, the one that also condemned Pelagius? Boo. Boo. Made infant baptism, official church doctrine. You guys are great. You guys are great. Number nine. Notice this. This is an important thing. What is the important part that makes baptism valid? Let me ask that question. What is it that makes baptism valid? Is it the faith of the minister? Like, if you were baptized by a guy and later on that guy forsakes the faith, do you have to be rebaptized? No, it's not the faith of the minister that makes baptism valid. Is it just the act in and of itself? Whether or not anyone has faith, just the act of doing baptism, that's what makes baptism valid. Is that what makes it valid? No. What is it that makes baptism valid? What is it? The faith of the participant, the faith of the baptizee, not the faith of the baptizer. Although it's great when they're Christians and orthodox, not the act in and of itself, it's your faith. It's whether or not the participant has faith, that's what makes baptism effective, okay? The early church didn't take that position. The early church, especially because of Augustine, who's so good on so many things, his view was that the act in and of itself is what made baptism valid. Not the faith of the minister because he was trying to stop this controversy in the early church called donatism not uh, the faith of the person who's participant because Augustine believes in infant baptism and that baby can't have faith, but rather that baptism works ec opera operato, of the work performed. Just by doing the act of baptism, God has promised that he will give you grace. God's promise of grace is not dependent upon you God's promise of grace is dependent upon God. And so that would end up being the view that would dominate until the Reformation, that it was baptism itself that regenerated you, not your your personal faith before that or something like that. Now that's huge, by the way. You see a lot of scandals in the Roman Catholic Church with priests being inappropriate with all these kids and all these other kind of things. Here's why it's really difficult to get rid of that because you can't call their regeneration into question. If they've been baptized, they're regenerate. In a Protestant church, you say, hey, the fact that you live in sexual immorality shows that you don't have the spirit. Okay? It's hard to say that in a Roman Catholic context when everybody who's been baptized as an infant has the Spirit. Number ten, baptisms were often done only two days a year on Easter and Pentecost. Eventually, they stopped doing that due to, to a high infant mortality rate. Okay. So the churches thought it was more holy to just do baptisms on Pentecost and Easter. You meet people like that today that think, I have to be baptized in the Jordan River. Somehow that's extra special or something like that. Or I have to be baptized by this famous minister, which the Bible explicitly speaks against. You were not baptized in the name of Paul, blah, blah, blah. And so uh, baptisms were done two days a year, and then the church said, we should stop doing that. We should just baptize people a lot more often, okay? Number 11, Thomas Aquinas, one of the premier theologians in uh, church history, listen to this, taught that water baptism was not necessary for salvation as long as one desired to be baptized, what's called a baptism by desire, or died as a martyr, a baptism by blood. So if you grew up thinking that baptism is necessary for salvation and you cannot be saved without it, you need to know that you've gone even further than Roman Catholicism. You've gone even further than Roman Catholics, and Roman Catholics are big on baptism. That is a big deal to them. They think it is salvific. They think it's what regenerates you. But even guys like Aquinas would say, well, that's not really the point. God is not bound by baptism. God can give grace to whoever he wants. So you can have a baptism by desire. Or if you die as a martyr before you've had a chance to get water baptized, a baptism by blood. Number 12, at the Reformation, you got a brand new view of baptism not held before in the church that baptism should still be done of infants, but it didn't save them. It was merely an initiation into the covenant people of God, but the child had to personally believe later to be saved. Now, we don't have time to talk a lot about this. Jeff has an entire lesson on why we don't do infant baptism and why we believe the paedo-baptist tradition misunderstands the Abrahamic covenant, okay? It's a covenantal issue. But here's what you need to understand. Sometimes if I'm talking to one of my brothers in Christ who is a Presbyterian or comes from a Christian reform background or a Lutheran background or something, some sort of... uh, Uh, or I guess it wouldn't work with Lutherans, but with a Presbyterian background, what they'll say is, Zach, we do infant baptism. They'll give their reasons, but one of their reasons is the church has always done that. And I have to say to them, you understand the church has never done your view of infant baptism. The church has never done this view that it doesn't save. It's just like circumcision and that you're putting your children into the covenant people of God. For 1,500 years, three-fourths of church history, it was the Catholic view of baptism, which is not the same as the Presbyterian view. Number three, around this same time, certain groups began baptizing believers instead of infants. This is one of the uh, things that the Reformation produced is it produced people who, in studying the Bible, going to Sola Scriptura said, the only type of baptism we see in the New Testament is believers baptism, we don't see infant baptism. And interestingly, those who rejected infant baptism in the Reformation were drowned alive. There was no separation of church and state. To reject infant baptism was like rejecting your citizenship and was seen as an act of sedition or treason. So what would happen as, as people started to say, well, may, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be baptizing infants, we should be baptizing believers, that was seen as an act of sedition against the state. Your infant baptismal certificate was your birth certificate, okay? That was your signing up for selective service. It was, this, the, the, there is no separation of church and state. So when all of a sudden you start to say, well, we're going to do baptism of believers and not this one we had as infants, that's treason. And so uh, they were drowned alive. You want water? We'll give you water. Tie a rock to you, boom, throw you in the water. And so uh, we'll talk more about that whenever we teach on church history. That's kind of a fascinating uh, topic. But there is uh, the meaning and history of baptism. Jeff is going to come up, and we're going to do a little uh, little Q&A and uh, talk through some of these things, and then we'll continue talking about baptism next week.
1: All right, uh, first question we got, we, uh, we'll probably deal with it next week, but uh, the question is related to infant baptism and uh, the difference with credo baptism. And someone asked uh, whether one is morally or symbolically better than the other. And, uh, and so again, we will deal with this next week. Uh, let me answer that uh, briefly. The answer is yes. Not only is one better, but only one is actually baptism. So if you want us to back up that claim, then come next week. That will be a, a little teaser for that. Zach, you said that, ba- that Jesus was baptized on our behalf in order to earn our
0: salvation.
1: What does that mean, given that baptism doesn't save us? How does Jesus earn our uh, salvation if baptism is not what saves us?
0: Yeah, so just to be really clear, you are saved by works, but not your works. You're saved by the works of Christ. Okay? So in Jesus's life, he has to do a bunch of different things that are righteous. Okay? He offers sacrifices so that he can live righteously on your behalf, that doesn't mean you are saved by you offering sacrifices. Okay? He resisted temptation on your behalf. That doesn't mean you're saved just because you can resist temptation or try to at least or something like that. So we need to distinguish the difference between Christ's work and our work. Okay? We are not saved by anything we do. We are not saved by any rituals. We are absolutely saved by all the things that Jesus does because he lives righteously. Okay? He lives righteously on our behalf. So uh, baptism does not save you. Jesus, being obedient in all areas of life, does save you. And one of those areas that's important for him to do is identifying with John's message of repentance in the kingdom. That's what I'd say, something like that. It's great. Uh,
1: if someone refused to be baptized, would that hurt their spiritual growth or hinder their prayers?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah uh, anytime the Bible commands something, and you don't do it and you walk in disobedience, it will absolutely affect a bunch of areas of your life. So you need to understand, there's a difference between refusing to be baptized and then maybe misunderstanding baptism or having not gotten around to it or something like that. So do I think Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and these other groups that baptize infants are still saved and brothers in Christ? Absolutely. Are they wrong on baptism? Yes, but they're not high-handedly wrong. They're not saying, God, we hate you and we don't care about baptism. They're trying to do baptism and I think they're just misinterpreting it. So yes, there's sin there, but it's an unintentional, non-damning kind of thing. That's different than the person that says, I don't care what Jesus says, I won't get baptized. That's like the same person that says, I don't care what Jesus says, so I'll live in a gay relationship. Or I don't care what Jesus says, I will do what I want or whatever it is. If you are walking in any type of sin, it's gonna hinder your prayer life, it's gonna hinder your relationship with God. I remember having uh, one of the professors where I went to school, there was a student confessing just having this uh, like a pornography addiction. He was, you know, he was saying, I'm not going to give the professor's name, but professor, I'm really struggling with this. I feel like I keep failing. And it was so weird because the first thing the professor said, he said, have you been obedient to be baptized? And the student was like, no. And he's like, well, let's, let's start there. Maybe part of the problem is you're trying to fight a sin while still walking in other sin. And so I do think that uh, it is sin to not be baptized. So your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I just would add the... So I agree with that. I would add the, the, the fact that I think what we in the church and in our culture at large uh, don't do well is nuance. And so what we want to do is we want to think on... Uh, in terms of kind of polar opposites and extremes. And so we want to say, either if I don't get baptized, I'm under God's wrath, or if I... it doesn't matter whether or not I get baptized. And biblically, neither of those options are correct. And, uh, and so likewise, with any sin... So uh, if you are a believer and you sin, you are not, you don't somehow put yourself under condemnation again. You don't put yourself back under God's wrath, but that doesn't mean that it's just okay. And so what we have to be able to do is be able to nuance well. So not being baptized doesn't mean uh, that uh, God hates you, doesn't mean that you're under God's wrath, doesn't mean that you are condemned, doesn't mean any of those kinds of things. But if you are persisting in that, that is always going to have implications and consequences for you in regards to your sanctification uh, and all of those kinds of things.
0: Uh, One little thing I I forgot to mention is we just put out a blog online called Does Baptism Save You? And it walks through all those passages and then in the end explains then, okay, then what is the purpose of baptism if it's not salvific? So, sorry, keep going.
1: That's great. Uh, And then the last question was, what is the process for uh, baptism uh, here at Parkway? And then in particular, the emphasis on what's the process, especially if it's a uh, a kid,
0: a child. So, you want to Sure. That. So if somebody desires to be uh, baptized here at Parkway 1, we love that. Okay, I don't know if you've gotten to see baptisms here. They're a lot of fun. Everybody gathers around the water, and it's very informal, and we laugh, and we clap. It's really a, a cool kind of celebratory thing. So if you're scared, you're scared of people. You don't need to be. Everyone's in your corner. Nobody's like, boo, that was a bad baptism. Nobody's going to be doing that. Everybody's in your corner. It's a really exciting, fun thing. The process is this. First of all, let us know. If you're interested, let us know. And we will sit down and we will meet with you. And when we meet with you, we will go over basically two things. One, your testimony. We want to make sure that you're saved. We want to make sure that you know Christ. And two, we will explain to you what baptism is. Now that we're going to have these audio recordings on baptism, we'll now be able to send those to catechumen, to baptismal candidates now, so that they'll also get to listen to those things before baptism. And we'll make sure that you're a Christian, make sure you understand baptism. Then we will schedule a day to do baptism after services. If you have kids, okay, it's a little trickier with kids because kids have a tendency to parrot their adults. They have a tendency to parrot their parents and just say what their parents have said. So if there's a kid, anybody that's under 18, we have them sit down with Carl Brower, who's our family minister. Raise your hand there, Carl. And what Carl will do is grill them. I'm kidding, he's not gonna crush your kids. What he will do is he will go over, he'll have you in the room with him, and he'll ask them some basic questions to make sure they understand the gospel, to make sure that they understand the faith, okay? Sometimes his answer is, you know what, I think you need to wait a little bit longer. I'm not sure they really understand. It sounds like they're just saying things they've heard in church. Other times he says, you know what, I think this kid is regenerate and I think this is uh, this is pretty clear. And then we move forward with, with baptizing them. So the issue is not really adult versus children or infant baptism. It's believers versus unbelievers baptism. That's really what we're talking about. And so we want to make sure that your kids are believers regardless of, uh, of how old they are. But we have that extra step in place for kids uh, just because we don't, we don't want to do what happened to a lot of us. We got baptized as kids, and then we lived like the devil in college and realized we weren't really saved, and then got saved, and then have to do this whole process or whatever again to try to be faithful to the biblical pattern. So,
1: Yeah, so basically if you uh, need to be baptized, uh, if you have a kid who you desire to be baptized, all you have to do is just know contact staff, and we will kind of take the ball and run with it from there. So that was uh, that was it as far as questions go. Zach, you want to pray?
0: Sure. Almighty God, we thank you for today, and uh, we thank you for the gift of baptism. I pray that it would be an encouragement to us. I pray that it wouldn't be like it had been in my life, which is this source of stress and fear and condemnation and these kind of things, but rather it would be a joy. It would be an encouragement. I pray for uh, everyone in here who is a Christian who has been baptized, that they would rest in that. That they would remember that that was a time where they can put an anchor in the ground and say, God has promised to me forgiveness, washing, resurrection, cleansing, all these good things. I pray for those in here who uh, might not know Christ. I pray that you would save them, that you would open their eyes to the gospel. And I pray for those in here who do know Christ but maybe have not been uh, baptized. I pray that uh, you would just speak grace into their life, that you would lead them in that direction, but it wouldn't be harsh, it wouldn't feel condemning, it would just feel uh, gentle and gracious. Jesus, we thank you that a bruised reed you will not break, a smoldering wick you will not snuff out. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And we want to ask all of this in your name, amen.